place your advance order now on Amazon for the very first volume of the New Thinking Aloud Dialogue series, Is There Life After Death? Publication date is June 1st. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at precognitive dreaming. My guest is my good friend Russell Targ. Russell is one of the founders of the discipline of remote viewing. He conducted research in that field beginning in the 1970s at SRI International in Menlo Park, California. He is the author of numerous books, including Limitless Mind, A Guide to Remote Viewing and Transformation of Consciousness. The Reality of ESP, a Physicist's Proof of Psychic Abilities. The classic Mind Reach, written with his partner Hal Putoff, Scientists Look at Psychic Abilities. Russell produced the documentary Third Eye Spies, and his newest book is also called Third Eye Spies, Learn Remote Viewing from the Masters. Russell recently turned 89 years old. He lives in Palo Alto, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Russell. What a pleasure to be with you again. I'm very happy to be with you to talk about my favorite subject, about looking into the distance and looking into the future. Well, I know you've been doing uh, a lot of work with your dreams, Russell, and maybe for starters, you could uh, share with our viewers what your approach is uh, in terms of capturing precognitive events in your dreams. Well, capturing precognitive dreams is a lot like remote viewing, where you tell people to try and clear their minds before they go into the session. Now, in precognitive dreams, my experience is that most people have had precognitive dreams. In fact, most people's first contact with psychic abilities is a precognitive dream. But if you're going to use a precognitive dream, you have to be able to get rid of your anxiety dreams, your wish fulfillment dreams, your dreams cluttered up from the previous day's residue, and look for dreams which are of unique characterization, very very crisp, very unusual, bizarre. So, so if you're having a dream that's very startling, but basically, if you dream about failing a math test and you haven't studied the math test, we would not consider that precognitive. You're looking for a dream which is totally free of your previous day's residue and unusually clear and bizarre in its character. So for the past half year, I've been following that protocol with my wife, Patricia. I do not write down my dreams, sorry to say, but I have a lot of dreams and I've been eager 
to separate the true precognitive dreams from the annoying regular dreams. And my score, my score, my uh, plan is that I get credit in the big book for a precognitive dream if I tell my wife about the dream before it occurs. So if I have a precognitive dream or a dream I think is precognitive, I'll wake up and I'll say, well, it, it is based on the, the check that I wrote yesterday or the dinner that I had last night or is this really free of my usual belly aches and had nothing to do with my ordinary life and is crystal clear. So with this protocol, I make a certain number of type one errors. That is, I have dreams which turn out to be precognitive, but I don't tell Patty about them because they don't meet my protocol as I said it. Type two error would be telling her about a dream which doesn't come to pass, and that would be very bad. So this is like remote viewing. We we can skip a couple of, of pretty good remote viewings that aren't right, but we're very averse to any kind of errors. So in the past half year, I have not told Patty about any dream which failed to come true. We want to avoid announcing uh, precognitive dreams which are not really going to come true. And this is like what I had when I was at Lockheed. We were looking for wind shear using lasers. And it was very important never to fail to announce the wind shear that a plane is going to run into and crash. as a type 1 error, and you don't want any of those. It's not good if you announce a wind shear and it doesn't occur. That's bad for your publicity but nobody gets killed. So so in my work with Patricia, uh, I'm willing to miss an occasional hot dream that comes true, but I'm very eager uh, not to damage my credibility with my wife by saying I had this fabulous dream, let me tell you about it, and nothing happens. And in the past half year, I have never told her about a dream that failed to occur. How good are you at remembering your dreams since you don't write them down? I'm excellent at remembering dreams in great detail. When I wake when, when I wake up and have a dream, I can tell you on and on and on about what happened, who they were, what they wore. Were you always good at remembering your dreams like this? Yeah, I've always been good at remembering dreams. It's only, I would say, the past half year that I've had very sharp precognitive dreams. So, some dreams we may get to at the end, very complicated dreams. You have to wait 15 minutes before you realize that you're sort of caught up into, into a spider's web of weird dreams that are coming, that are manifesting one bit at a time. But we're not going to do that tonight. The thing, thing that I want to emphasize is that from our work at SRI and the work at Princeton, most psychical researchers are now convinced that precognition is as strong and reliable a phenomenon 
as remote viewing into the distance. I used to occasionally working with uh, army volunteers who are totally uh, unfamiliar with remote viewing or psychic or any of that stuff. And we were picking out the people who were going to take part in the Army ESP program at Fort Meade, which it became the um, Stargate program. And some of these people had had not a clue what I was asking them to do. I say, I don't know. I have no idea where they're hiding. I say, no, I know that. I say, but why don't we just do it this way? Uh, your boss is going to hide somewhere with hell. I have no idea where it could be at all. But we will all meet there in a half hour. You and me and Hal and your boss, we will all meet there. And I just want you to quiet your mind and tell me about the surprising images that appear in your awareness pertaining to where we're going to be in a half hour. We don't know where it is, but we will be someplace. Tell me what, what, tell me what are the surprising image that shows up? And I would say that works a hundred percent of the time in my in my experience. Well, you seem particularly gifted as a catalyst for psychic functioning. I know as a researcher, you have a track record that's almost unparalleled in in the field of parapsychology. So, as we've discussed in our several of our previous interviews, I think there's something about you, Russell, and your particular charisma that that's a factor. But for what about for some of our viewers will probably wish to emulate the technique that you're using. So if if people have a difficult time remembering their dreams, and frankly, I'm such a person, uh, what advice would you give? Mainly, you want to separate out your um, residue of the previous day, which really clutters up your dream. And you want to separate out your wish fulfillment, which is better makes up the other portion of people's usual dreams. You dream about what you would like to be, where you would like to go. And you have to separate those out from the surprising, bizarre characteristics. Now, I, I don't know uh, if, I, if I'm unusually good at that. There are a lot of people, many people, uh, write down their dreams and have whole books full of dreams. Many, many psychologists, many ESP researchers. I, I'm not one of those because I'm not that kind of researcher. And it's just recently, as I got particularly interested in precognition, as I, my, my idea in, in a nutshell, which we'll come back to, is that in precognition, by and large, your sleeping brain is getting a signal from your awake brain that's having an experience. So uh, if, if I have a dream about a lampshade of a naked person in a car in a store window, and I wake up and I can see that naked person in the window, uh, I now expect that sometime in the next day or next hour, I'm going to see that picture on on my screen or I'm going to be there. 
so that my wide awake brain at 10 o'clock is in communication with a sleeping brain. An, an example of brains that are connected like that, I would like to say that they're entangled because that's a very current way of describing them and three people just got Nobel Prizes for showing about showing that things are indeed entangled. But I don't know that the brains are quantum mechanically entangled. An example would be uh, Guy Playfair wrote a book about the uh, shared experiences of twins. Twin telepathy. Twin telepathy. Very interesting book. And the book opens up. So the thing that made me want to write this book is that in London, a man was shot dead on the street corner, and a mile away, his brother fell to the pavement. And he had a whole book of events like that. The brother, of course, wasn't shot and didn't hear the shot. They were separated by a mile. But he had a whole book full of events where twin A has usually some shocking experience and twin B experiences it or gets sick at the same time or has a pain at the same time. So it's crystal clear that that these twins are entangled. And there's a whole, uh, there's an American book about twin studies in Minneapolis, the twin cities, where they were doing studies where they're bringing people all over the neighborhood. The famous one that even made it to Scientific American, where two brothers named James, who were identical twins but separated at birth for religious reasons, they had to go in different places. But as they grew up, it eventually came to pass that both of them became firemen. Both of them married women named Linda, whom they then divorced and married women named Mary. And they then showed up at the uh, university wearing the same blue chambray shirt, steel-rimmed glasses, and happy to talk about their career as firemen. So you have to... I have to assume that these two two guys were entangled in some way because you have. I, I'm just telling you what I remember from this whole article. The whole article, full of things that they did in common, uh, surprising everybody enough to make it into Scientific American. And um, Playfair's book is full of events like that. People. The, the twins who had not seen each other for decades show up wearing the same dress or the same store. So so I, I think that it's... With, with the current vocabulary of quantum mechanics, I would say that their consciousness is entangled. You don't have to use that fraught word, but it's the idea, just as the identical twins show, that they are somehow strongly connected and I think that that's can be said between the I, my hypothesis here is that your waking brain and your sleeping brain are entangled the same way as the brains of the twins. That's that's my going in hypothesis now. Does that make any sense to you? 
Well, it seems as if the uh, similarity of the physical DNA or even other features of the physical structure of the brain uh, has something to do with the possibility of telepathic communication or, as you suggest, possibly entanglement. And naturally, what could be more similar than one's brain in the present and one's brain at some future time? It, it makes sense that, that they would be entangled. Uh, but then the question is, why this particular time? Uh, possibly the uh, uh, events that we precognize in our dreams may have some significant emotional meaning. A Jungian interpretation would suggest, you know, that when a synchronicity occurs, there's uh, which this could be viewed as a synchronicity, that there's something deeper behind it. I had a dream about the Esalen Institute, where I had lectured for almost 40 years on psychic stuff. I would do weekend workshops. And finally, in uh, 2012, I, I, I got since I don't know what's happening, as a scientist, I began to feel embarrassed about lecture. It's like doing magic. I could demonstrate this stuff, show them how uh, remote viewing works, but I had nothing to say about the mechanism. I got tired of uh, displaying my ignorance year after year. So I said goodbye to Mike Murphy and haven't, had not been there uh, for almost 20 years. <clears throat> then I had a dream about being in the big house, which is a large community building where we would all sit together in a circle. Very, very pleasant. You had all scientists or, or psychic researchers in this very comfortable place on the on the hillside above the Pacific Ocean, lovely, wonderful vibrations. And I hadn't been there, and I had a dream that I wanted to be with my friends again, but I couldn't afford the money to cross the river. It's sort of like you're, you're locked out of hell or something. And I told Patty about this, my wife, and she said, well, if you want to go to Esalen, we can afford to go to Esalen. It's pretty expensive, but we can, we can do that for a weekend if you want to. And we, we let it go because I'm not that eager to go to Esalen. It's a, bit, it's a long drive, so forth. So I come into this room where I am now with my cup of coffee, as I do every day, turn, turn on my computer and see what's there. And I had an email from Jeffrey Kripal, who's a professor of religion at Rice University, pretty good friend of mine. And I said, oh, what does Jeffrey have to say? And I open his message to me, and a film starts rolling, opening up with a group of people sitting in the big house, including me. So the first thing I see, I push the button on my screen. First thing I see is a whole group of people sitting in a circle at Esalen, including myself, five minutes after I tell Patricia that's what I had in my dream. So, so that, that, that's the world I'm currently living in. I believe Jeffrey Kripal is chairman of the board of Esalen right now. He wrote a book about Esalen and featured... Uh, things that I had done there and teaching I had done at Esalen. So I made, I made it into, into his book. 
But that's that's a very direct example. Uh, five minutes into the future of a uh, uh, an unusual event, uh, and it was so unusual that you made a point to telling Patty about it, which in in your case is a, a very important criterion. Otherwise, it wouldn't have counted. That's right. I loved Esla, and it had a big emotional meaning for me. I I, I was not. It was not a wish fulfillment dream that I wasn't longing to be at Esalen, but or maybe in my subconscious I was. A similar kind of dream, uh, I, I had a dream in which a Mark Line electric train was running in a circle around my living room. And uh, I've never had such a try. I'm familiar, I used to be at as a child, I was uh, an aficionado of trains. I had lots of trains in my life. It never happened to own a Mark Line. The Mark Line trains are interesting because they're very square back, like the elevated trains in Chicago. So I told Patty I had a dream about um, electric train, toy trains running around the, our living room. And she said, well, that's interesting. You've never had trains in this house, as far as I know. I've been in the house 50 years, never had any trains. So I went, went, took my coffee, turned on the New York Times, and the front page story, for some reason, was the rebuilding of the elevated trains in downtown Chicago, right above my father's bookshop on Dearborn Street. They show a very crisp picture of the train running in a circle around downtown Chicago, an area that's called the Loop. So that had all sorts of hooks for me, connected to my father, connected to where I grew up in Chicago. I rode the elevated trains all the time, and it was related to trains that I sort of hankered after but never owned namely these fancy German trains. But again, it was uh, couldn't have been more than 20 minutes after I woke up, told Patty about the trains running around our house, uh, that I got to see that on my screen. Well, I suppose that... Uh... If I, if, which I'm not, but if I were to take a, a, a critical attitude towards this experiment, I might say, well, it could be that once you've had the dream and you discover uh, that it's so unusual, now you're on the lookout to find something in your environment to, to match the dream. So that I think this is a very interesting experiment or experience that you're having, but I imagine you would agree that it's not ready for publication yet in the IEEE journal. That's right, because we don't know what's going on. But the the connection is usually very sharp. In the last six months, how many of these successful precognitive dreams would you say there have been? Well, let's see, I sent you four, and I would say there's two others that I have not, that there were in a way too, too elaborate to go into with, with a, a great dream, I dreamt that I robbed a bank, and that came to pass. 
What, what? It came to pass that you robbed a bank? No, I, I was. In, in a nutshell, I stole. I stole some. I stole the. I stole a, a faceplate off the wall in my safety deposit box, and I then had to run all over San Francisco trying to scrub the fingerprints off. And I was going to throw it in the bay from the Bay Bridge, and I was afraid that someone would see me. And I came home, and under the sink, I looked for Windex. I looked for uh, every solvent I could imagine to try and scrub my fingerprints off this shiny thing. And it was really a very long, elaborate search for a solvent to clean it up. And I told Patty about that, and she thought that was pretty strange. And about 20 minutes later, I got a package in the mail, which was a glass screen cover for my telephone. I'd never, I, I did order it, but I'd never seen such a thing. And they say, before you open this, read the instructions. And there were three different solvents in little containers and three different scouring cloths. And I gave, because of my bad vision, this is not a good job for me. But I gave it all, all the thing, and that led Patty to a half hour worth of scouring fingerprints off of this thing. And a kind of uh, fearful, paranoid way to make sure they were, every crumb, every fingerprint got to be scoured off with these solvents. So I have to assume that the, the, the the, the the dream about the solvents was stimulated by this crazy activity over the solvents because the activity was uh, stressful for me because I, I don't see well enough to scour off scour fingerprints off a off a glass, but I'm I'm sure that the, the stress and all the solvent business is what stimulated the crazy dream. Because I, in fact, did I, in fact, did not steal anything from my bank, but I created this other, the 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 thing that I dreamt about stealing the shiny brass plate was exactly the size, as you can imagine, of the cover plate of a telephone. So that, that's what dreams are made of. I know that it's very boring to hear people tell about last night's acid trip. So I hope that this is not like this. I hope there's more more, more reality. Well, the, the advantage of talking about acid trips and talking about precognitive dreams is that it's not just about you and what's going on in, inside of your mind. It's uh, for our viewers. This is a possibility for anybody watching this video that uh, I don't think it's as if you have an exclusive access to precognitive information. That's right. I think what's interesting about these dreams it's it's like I have a a book now that's uh, written it from the future. That is, I, I'm telling you not about my crazy acid trip where I was making love to a snowman, but in this case, I have a dream that I actually tell somebody about in detail, and then it occurs. And that that's what we usually require in a scientific experiment. Now, in the pumpkin dream, 
is my favorite, and you'll see why that is. I had a dream, and all of these are very vivid dreams. I had a dream where I was with my wife, Patricia, in the dream, and she was dragging a huge pig on a leash down the street. She had a huge gray pig that she was dragging down the street. And, And as you've caught on now, that's probably a candidate for a possible precognitive dream. So I went, and I, and I love, I loved it because it was such a, a weird, peculiar, out of context dream. So I went shuffling in my pajamas. Patty's always up before me, was sitting at the coffee and with the TV out over her head. And I said, I had this amazing dream about you're, you're dragging a huge pumpkin. And she said, well, if you look at the TV screen right over my head, you'll see there was this huge pumpkin in the back of a truck right over my head. And I played the part of Magoo in this. I said, oh, yeah, I see. see. You remember Mr. Magoo? I said, yeah, I I see that. I I see that pig, a huge pig with his tail sticking out. And she laughed because it was not a pig at all. It was a pumpkin or the one-ton pumpkin that had just won a fair, but it was a large one-ton pumpkin with a stalk of the pumpkin sticking out the back. So if you realize the target does not see very well, especially without his glasses at 7 o'clock in the morning, Patty could tease me and say, yes, there's there's your pig, but actually it was a pumpkin and then I just won a pumpkin prize. So the reason that I think that's a hot event for me is it shows that uh, my dream is caused by what I apprehend more than what was really there. There, there, there was not a pig for me to see, but because of my bad vision and my wife's joke, I was perfectly ready to accept that there was a pig in the truck, but it was really a pumpkin. So that when I had the dream, I did not dream about a Halloween pumpkin. I dreamt about the pig that I imagined I saw in the back of the truck. So I thought I thought that's very circumstantial that the dream is in fact caused by what I see or think that I see. Would you say that in in your dream you were looking at the pig from the rear end, seeing the tail stick out the way it appears in this image of the pumpkin? No, I would not. Well, I, my in, in the dream she was dragging it like a big dog down the street, mm. and, it, it, and it, but it looked like a big pig. I mean, my my apprehension is she was dragging a pig, and when I got to look at the. I mean, when you show the image, you'll see that it looks like a pig or or a pumpkin, depending on what, what your apprehension is. And anyway, uh, because of the misapprehension, I thought that a particularly good example for me, showing that I'm not dreaming about what I'm gonna what's out there, but I'm dreaming about what I think that I see. So next, the final final day is my the one that I think is the best and most interesting, because often these things show up in the New York Times. 
I had a dream about looking at a full page of the New York Times in print, which I, of course, can't read. I can't read it anyway without my bifocals, but I certainly can't. People almost never read anything in a dream, but as though it was being narrated to me that this is a long story about a famous European impressionist something. And when I woke up, I had the idea that this might be um, uh, an, the, my favorite existentialist, Jean-Paul Sartre. I mean, Sartre, Sartre occupies a sizable place in my cognition. I, when I woke up, I thought this might be an article about Sartre, but I didn't tell Patty that. I said I had a dream about a French Impressionist whose picture appears in the New York Times, and I feel very confident that he's really going to be there. So instead of just having my story about what appears, I want you to come in and share the experience with me. So Patty and I sat together as I opened, opened the New York Times, hit the button to show the picture, and there was a full-page picture of Pablo, Pablo Picasso filling the page. So not only did I have the idea that it was indeed a European Impressionist, but I was so confident that I was willing to call Patty in to share the experience of seeing it pop up as I pressed the button. So I felt that the demonstration of confidence uh, makes me feel that I'm really making some progress with regard to the signal-to-noise ratio of a future event. you got to remember all of these stories. I, I'm telling you about things that manifested in my life but were first appeared in a dream of the future. So all of these things that I'm seeing, Pablo Picasso in the Times, was half an hour before he appeared in my life. So I think so I think that it's really increasingly evident now that the future is available. The future is available. That is a very interesting way of looking at life. It's as if we often imagine ourselves living along one timeline from birth to death as we grow older with punctuated by certain events like uh, marriage and other celebrations, vacations, and so But It suggests that we're living in more than one dimension of time. Oh, definitely. I mean, we definitely misapprehend the whole nature of what's going on. You recall the, the, the high point of my ESP career after leaving SRI was forecasting changes in the silver commodity market. Now, I didn't do the forecasting, of course, but I, I set the stage using uh, <clears throat> Stephen Schwartz's scheme of... Associative remote viewing. Associative remote viewing. We, we know that a person can't read the numbers on the big board in New York. He can't see what silver is going to do. I couldn't say, look at the big board in New York and tell me what's going to be there. But we can make an association where the broker has a job of deciding 
silver can go up or silver can go down, can go up a little, can go down a lot. And he has to choose four objects each Friday or each Monday in our case. And each object, he would choose an object that corresponds to up a little, up a lot, down a little, or down a lot. And it's a random association. So, for example, he might say, this week, if it goes up a lot, I'll show you the coffee cup. If it goes up a little, I'll show you the flowers. If it goes down a little, I'll show you... um, My Swiss Army knife, if it goes down a lot, I'll show you my leftover pancake. Now, those objects, of course, have nothing to do with up a little or not. Then I would sit with my friend Keith Harari, who is a prodigiously excellent psychic, lifelong psychic, and he agreed to take part in this experiment. So on a typical Friday, on typical Monday, Harari and I are sitting at my dining room table. I say, okay, Keith, here we are. We're, we don't talk about silver at all. We're not forecasting anything. All Harari is asked to do by me is quiet your mind and tell me I'm going to put something in your hand next Friday. And I'd like you to tell me now what you experience. I'm going to find an interesting, unusual object and I'll put it right in your hand, right here, right at my table. Tell me what what surprising images come to your mind. What shows up regarding what I'm going to hand you next Friday? And Keith might say, well, you have something round and kind of floppy, and it has a, a bad smell. I don't really like this object. And I would say, Well, that's a terrific description, very unique. I think that's so unique that you can go now, and I'll see you next Friday. So I call the broker, and I say, what have you got, John? He said, well, I've I've got my Swiss Army knife, and I got a cup of coffee, I got some flowers, and I've got my leftover pancake. And I say, tell me about your leftover pancake. He said, well, it's a regular pancake. It's just leftover, round, and floppy. And based on the four objects that we had available, your friend Harari described the pancake much more clearly than any of the other four objects, obviously. And it's clear enough, so I'm willing to go ahead. So based on the fact that Harari described the pancake very clearly, we would sell $20,000 worth of silver into what happened to be a rising market. Market went down that day, and we made our biggest hit of the series of nine trials, selling silver against the Hunt brothers, based on the fact that Harari saw a pancake instead of a coffee cup. So we did that nine nine weeks in a row, Harari described the correct object nine out of nine times, and our broker, John, uh, exercised that forecast seven out of the nine times. Two of the nine, he Harari's forecast, although correct, 
deviated so much from what the experienced broker wanted to do. He's playing, we're, 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 we're putting fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 worth of cash into the market from an investor. And uh, the broker has some feelings of responsibility that he really doesn't want to make a stupid investment based on a pancake because he'll have nothing to tell his investor about why he lost $50,000 on this trial. So we we had nine we had nine forecasts all correct, seven investments in the market all correct, and we made a quarter million dollars based on Harari's precognitive assessment of what he was going to have in his hand the next Friday. Well, that's excellent evidence for precognition. I know that experiment was done back in the 1980s, some almost 40 years ago, Russell. In 1982. More than 40 years ago. Looking back over the last four decades, there have been many other efforts to replicate what you've done, some successful, some not. But do you have any feelings about the use of precognition in that way to make money? Well, there's a group, you know, the Inter- International Remote Viewing Association, IRVA, which is not a research organization, but there are applications that are helping police find missing children and kidnap cases and making money in the market. And many of the IRVA people are using this associated remote viewing scheme to forecast sporting events which gives you a chance to double your money. That if, you're, if your odds of being correct are pretty good odds, then forecasting sporting events, if you do it correctly, you'll double your money. And there are quite a number of people who claim to be making, uh, making a living doing this now. I'm under the impression that the really successful ones don't like to talk about it too much. Well, not publicly, but people are willing to tell me what they're doing because they feel that they're happy that this, uh, the ARV scheme invented by Schwartz and the fact that I made a ton of money forecasting gave some reality to this particular event. Well, of course, it's well known at this point that there was a subsequent trial where, if I recall correctly, you lost nine times in a row. The investor wanted to do this twice a week instead of once a week. We've cornered the silver market. We're going to make a fortune. Doing it twice a week instead of once a week means that the viewer does not get feedback for trial one until he's done trial two. And we think that feedback is very important, and we had deprived the viewer of his feedback because that's what the investor wanted to do. The other thing we're doing is we're having me do the judging, and I would do the judging from a tape recording left on my telephone, and I had no credibility for being a judge at all. I, and I misjudged the first trial. Remote viewing judging requires skill. 
And in a nutshell, on the first trial, which I failed to judge, uh, Harari said, I think they're the zoo. I can smell the zoo. I see the animals, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, no, it's not the zoo. It's a um, entertainment thing where you ride little cars around in a circle. And then, uh, and that was the end of his recording. It turned out that one of the possibilities was the zoo. The other was a uh, ride a game where you can ride your car around in a circle. And so he had described two possible targets excellently. In our general view, in, a ta- in case of ties, you choose the first one he described. And that was not the right thing to do. It was the second thing he described. And Harari was very angry about that because he said to me, if you listen to the tape, when I'm done with the zoo, I say clearly, this is not the target. The target is actually this, this Rydum game. And you, if you had listened to me, you'd have been correct. And that's all true. So uh, we decided that I'm not a I'm not a good judge. This is not a good protocol, and we dropped the experiment. I guess it's fair to say that if someone wishes to engage in this kind of work to make money, they need to really treat it as a professional project because it's a very delicate process. That that's right. You have to. Our protocol was excellent. We know that feedback is very important. We dropped the feedback because that's what the investor wanted to do. Uh, we had had the judges had the judging done by somebody who doesn't know anything about judging, which is me in this case. So we did a number of ways. We, we screwed up the experiment in a number of ways, and it failed. But since then, a number of people have done this exact thing and appear to be able to make money. Well, I I wanted to refer to the work at Princeton that you alluded to before we began the program, where they did a lot of remote viewing exercises, experiments, and determined that the precognitive remote viewing worked just as well as real-time. They published on one piece of paper all the data for 334 trials over a period of 20 years, significant at 10 to minus 11th, and the looking into the future is no more difficult than looking into the distance. Well, the real question, and I guess we probably don't have a good answer yet, is like radio signals, for example, fall off with distance. Does remote viewing fall off as the distance becomes really great or in time as well? Does it fall off? There's no evidence that remote viewing falls off with distance. No, no, no evidence at all. For example, one of the last things they did with Ingo Swan, who's our great remote viewer who invented the idea of remote viewing, we had a contract from NASA to test people's ability to learn with the ESP game. And one day, our contract monitor from NASA came to visit us 
look at the game, see our people really learning, which they were. And he turned to Ingo and said, we're about to send a pioneer number two to Jupiter. Uh, would you like to take a look at Jupiter and tell us now whether we're going to find anything new that people haven't seen before? Could you do that, Ingo? And Ingo said, yeah, I could do that. Give me a pencil and paper and I'll make you a drawing. And he made a drawing and said, basically, what's new about Jupiter is it has a couple of very large rings all the way around the planet. And I don't believe anybody's ever seen large rings around Jupiter. And our friendly administrator said, well, aren't you thinking of Saturn? And Ingo said, I spent my entire life looking at the solar system. You have to believe I can tell the difference between Jupiter and Saturn. And seven months later, the spacecraft got to Jupiter. And in fact, the one thing it had to announce that was new is that there were a couple of very large rings around Jupiter. Jupiter is 500 million miles away. And the reason that's important is that it took Ingo zero time to focus his attention on Jupiter and describe what was there. Now, uh, 500 million miles away means that it's more than 40 light minutes away. That assuming he was actually using a physical property to look at Jupiter, it would have taken him 40 minutes to get any kind of electromagnetic signal from Jupiter to him. And so the important thing about this experiment, which I believe nobody has ever talked about, is that Ingo did a remote viewing faster than the speed of light. It would certainly make sense if we can look into the future and into the past as well. I know you have research pointing in that direction. Then the speed of light becomes somewhat irrelevant. Well, quantum physicists are very upset. The everything, all, all quantum physicists agree that you can't use quantum physics to send messages because they observe correctly that if you can send messages with quantum physics, the messages get transmitted faster than the speed of light or instantaneously. And as a true holy cow within modern physics, you can't do anything faster than the speed of light. And needless to say, it's equally forbidden to look into the future. But the prima facie evidence of faster than the speed of light is particularly upsetting. And all of these things where you have what one guy entangled with another one sending him messages about the future uh, is a big problem for modern physics. There's Elizabeth Rauscher and I had a, a model for how that works. Elizabeth Rauscher, the physics professor at Berkeley, uh, who died a couple of, uh, about a year ago. And this model said that the space-time we live in is actually a complex space-time made up of, of real parts and imaginary parts. And the consequence of that is there will always be a trajectory from where you are to any other point in space-time 
And because of the fact that you have real parts and imaginary parts, there will always be a trajectory of zero distance between you and the distant place. Now, um, that does not generate... First of all, the good news is that that does not generate any bad physics. You're not violating Maxwell's equations or relativity theory. Because nothing's going a priori faster than the speed of light because you're following a path where there is no distance. And this, there will always be a path where there's no distance. Basically, it's like you have, a, I'm not a, you have a right triangle where one of the sides is imaginary. So x squared plus y squared will give you a, a negative side and the distance will turn out to be zero. It's just Pythagorean. There is nothing more than Pythagorean's theorem that allows the distance to go to zero. And that makes perfect sense mathematically, Russell. Uh, it also suggests, and, and I know you're a deep student of uh, Buddhism and uh, various forms of meditation, it also suggests if the distance between me and any other point in the universe is zero, that in some sense we are one with everything. Well, the Buddha said again and again uh, that there's no separation in consciousness. I don't know that he said there's no separation in anything. The idea of no separation in consciousness is in the Prajnaparamita, uh, which is his writings. And, and it's clear that as far as he's concerned about human beings, human beings are not separated from one another. And, and that's a clear pronouncement, and that would take us back to where we began with the identical twins who essentially have a shared consciousness or a shared brain. And I think everybody uh, should read Guy Playerfair's book. Twin Telepathy. Tw- Twin Telepathy. Absolutely fascinating book. Uh, Playfair, the trustworthy English parapsychologist. I would agree. That book, and in fact, anything by Guy Lyon Playfair is is worth reading. Well, Russell, I want to thank you once again very much for being with me. I think that this is our 11th interview, as a matter of fact. I hope we can do many more. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate your excellent interviewing. Thank you, Jeffrey. For those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website.